Good to see everybody. Welcome. Welcome this morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm so glad to be here. Let me just ask uh, the question. I, who, who's heard of the, the, the term uh, hindsight is 2020? Who's heard of that? Quite a few people. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife is one that hadn't heard of it. And then I kind of poked fun of her about that. And then, of course, regretted that because, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, but I do have a, a funny little story about that recently, just actually last week. Um, I'm on this text thread with my brother, my younger brother, and two younger sisters. And one of the things that we all have in common is that my grandmother, for many, many years while we were young, and even into our 20s, every Valentine's she would send us a $2 bill. In, you know, in the mail, in a little card, Valentine's Day card, $2 bill, great. And so I guess there was this news report. Actually, I, I saw the news report because my sister shared it on this link, or uh, a link on our thread. And it's talking about how these $2 bills, if you have any, hold on to them. Because you don't even have to go that, back that far, maybe even to like the early 2000s. And they're going on auction for like, at auction on eBay for like 2500 2700 and so sure enough, my sister, she's like, I've got all my $2 bills. And she, she shows a picture of all these $2 bills. My other sister's like, yeah, she's, she's got her $2 bills out. My brother's like, yeah, I got mine somewhere. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I spent mine on candy. <laughs> and, and, you know, obviously if I had it to do it all over again, well, let's be honest, I would, I would buy the king-size Kit Kat again because, you know, if, if the only thing standing between a 15-year-old and a king-size Kit Kat is a $2 bill, I'm probably going for the Kit Kat. You can't take it with you when you go, can you? You can't take it with you go anyway. Uh, our text today, uh, we're going to be in, let me get the clicker going here. There we go. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 again, verse 14 through 27. Um, our text today has some in- implications and some speculations around this question. What will the end look like? And in our passage, Jesus is going to warn about uh, what is called this abomination, what he says is an abomination of desolation. He's going to talk about a time following that of some tribulation. And and then he's going to point toward this supernatural union of of God, where he gathers all his, his saints together that, that Christians have coined the rapture. But, but this is tricky because to answer our question, what will the end look like, hinges greatly on great debate and speculations over end times timelines. And what do I mean? Well, for example, our text today is, is one that some... Uh, believe has taken place. It took, it took place in their future, meaning in the, in the future of the disciples, but it's taken place in our past. And there's other, others that believe, well, no, uh, this has taken place. Uh, it, it's going to take place in our future, and some that believe a, com- a combination of that kind of thing. And so there's these different, uh, what we call end times or eschatological camps. And, and what's eschatology. Well, it's just the study of the end. Okay, the study of the end. And, and I'm going to give a, just a basic, very basic general idea of these, uh, these different camps. Uh, I'm really not even going to name them today. We're going to try to stay um, in our text and, and kind of out of the weeds. But 
I have some biases of my own as I've been studying this, and so some of those are going to creep through. But, but regardless, there's these three camps. One camp says that um, between now and the return of Jesus, things are going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until Jesus comes and he saves the world and he raptures us out of here. And there's different ideas around when that rapture happens. There's another, another view that think, says, well, you know, you know look, let's look at history, even though I know many of us, well, well but things are getting bad, but really, would you want to go back 500 years ago? And would you want to go back 500 years be, be, before that? So not so fast if you think this isn't, is, don't just check this off as not, not a good uh, idea. Uh, the, the other view is that things are going to get better and better and better as we advance the gospel until Jesus returns. And then there's another view that kind of says, no, things are going to continue to kind of ramp up together. Good and evil together are going are to ramp up together. And again, hence this is the term eschatology, the, the study of the end. And there's really two types of eschatology. There's, there's personal eschatology, i.e. upon our end, upon our own death. And then there's eschatology on a global scale, right? The, i.e. the end of the world history as we know it. And, and here's the issue, here's one of the things that makes this tricky. There's zero consensus amongst theologians on this, okay? And I'm talking about God-fearing, Bible-believing, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, saved Christians disagree greatly on these things. And so, um, spoiler alert, we're not going to figure this out in the next 25 minutes, we're not going to figure this out in the next 25 minutes, but I'm, again, going to do my best to stay in our text, draw out insights and applications for our lives here and now um, without pinning us down to any um, one particular view uh, this morning. Um, and in my own experience, um, to be transparent and honest, this has been kind of a back burner doctrine for me, eschatology, the study of the end Things and, and I would bet that that's true for some of you here as well. My, my end times doctrine up until about, I'd say, four or five years ago was most, mostly formed by just popularized ideas, it, kind of the eschatological de jour, uh, the, the, the eschatology of the day. And it's been popularized in movies and that kind of thing. You've, how many people have seen the end, the, uh, uh, what's it called, the Kirk Cameron one? Thank you, Left Behind series. I actually didn't see it, but I know that was very popular, like in the 80s, 90s kind of thing. And so many of us have formed ideas in all, in all the movies and whatnot um, around that. And probably less have we formed those ideas around a careful examination of God's word. So this should bring conviction a little bit, and, and I would say it's, important to come to our own conclusions, our own convictions about eschatology, about end times. I think eschatology matters. I think where we, where we think we are headed will have an effect on how we are living our lives here and, and now. For example, um, and again, I'm not trying to put up any straw men to knock down, but, and this may show my bias a little bit here, but if we think that things are just going to get Worse and worse and worse and worse, and then, and then all of a sudden, uh, in a blink of an eye, we're going to be taken out of here, leave our, our um, trousers behind, <laughs> like in the movie, I think, um, and we're going to miss you know, any of the tribulation stuff, then, then why fight it? Why, you know, that, that 
idea of, of things are going to continue to get worse until Jesus rescues us, um, well, again, well, why fight it? If that's God's plan to make things worse and worse, why am I trying to advance the gospel exactly? So that's one of the issues I have with, with that view. Um, so, so regardless of that, with an open Bible on your lap, I would encourage you to begin giving this, uh, this end times, your end times theology, some legs of your own, and begin to give it due diligence. We have a resource for you here, um, PursueGod.org. Uh, this is a fairly new one that just came out. I think there's about five episodes here. I know there's five episodes at this point. It's probably about three to four hours worth of listening content. And I will tell you right now that this will only be dipping your little pinky toe in the water listening to this. You'll still be like, okay, I don't know where I stand. So, uh, again, if for no other reason, just because we believe that God's word is important, we believe 2 Timothy 2.15 and and 3.16, 2.15 says, be diligent to make yourself approved by God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. It's profitable. In other words, it's good for teaching or, or for doctrine, for rebuke, for correction, for training in, in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. So yeah, we need, to, we need to not discount any of God's word. We need to, even if this isn't your favorite category, there's probably some people in here that love this stuff, you're really into it, um, and that's great too. Um, but we all should come to this place of, of our own understanding. And when it's all said and done, you know, you may have a different idea than I do. And guess what? We might both be wrong, but hopefully we can, in, in eternity, over a cup of coffee and a king-size Kit Kat, we can, have a, we can have a chuckle about it, okay? So, um, yeah, I'm taking a whole lot of time to set up this idea today that we're not going to get to this, this question, what will the end look like exactly? Um, we're going to get into our text here. Let's, let's look at this. Um, oops. Well, i got to point it that way, I guess. There we go. Um, we're going to get into our text today, but before we even do that, we need to recap a little bit because we kind of cut Jesus off mid-explanation mid last week. So just real quick, last week, Jesus and his disciples were heading toward the Mount of Olives, and the disciples said, wow, look at the temple, it's amazing, and indeed it was. And Jesus said, yeah, uh, and this is a paraphrase, and said, yeah, it's, it's amazing, but it's all going to be torn down, not one stone upon another. And so then Jesus had these, these two questions for, or pardon me, his disciples had these two questions for, for Jesus. They said, well, Jesus, when? When is this going to be and what are the signs so that we know what's going to happen? And, and so this sets up our, our text today. And this is continuing Jesus' answer. He says, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. 
and pray that your flight will not be in winter. Okay, so this sacrilegious object that causes desecration, uh, other more uh, word-for-word texts use this terminology, abomination of desolation. Well, let's, let's try to figure out what this is, and let's start by defining terms uh, on this uh, journey to discover um, when this is going to be, answering these questions, when and w- what is it. Uh, first of all, abomination is something that causes disgust or hatred, and des- desolation is uh, a state of defilement, complete emptiness or destruction. So again, abomination simply means um, uh, a, a great sin or uh, very oftentimes when the word abomination is used in, in Scripture, it's talking about idolatry. And desolation is just simply means to, to make defiled. Okay, so at this point, what we're going to do is we're going to see if we can gain some understanding through looking at some of the other gospel writers who also recorded this conversation. It's called... The, um, uh, oh shucks, well I'll think about that in a second. I'll give you that answer in a second. But this conversation, Olivet Discourse, thank you. The Olivet Discourse um, is recorded in the other Gospels and, and Matthew talks about it. Now Matthew is, is one of the writers who is concerned with his Jewish readers, okay? He, he wants to make sure that his Jewish readers know that Jesus connected back to their, to their scriptures, to the old Testament. So this is what Matt, this is how Matthew records this. He says, "So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, okay, an Old Testament reference, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand." Okay, and again, he's he's doing this. He's being purposeful to connect Jesus back to the Old Testament. So then we can look at Daniel, and we can look at how Jesus um, referenced Daniel. Uh, in this conversation he's having with his disciples about the destruction of the temple, he says in Daniel 11:31, "Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and, and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation." Okay, well, let's move on now to Luke. Now Luke's audience is is more of the Gentile audience. So he kind of dumbs it down for the Gentiles. And here's how he describes this conversation Jesus had with the disciples. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, okay, none of this abomination of desolation kind of talk, just makes it very clear. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Okay, so, so based on our, on our context that this is a conversation Jesus was having to answer these disciples about when the destruction was gonna, of the temple was, was going to happen and what signs should they be looking for, we can come to this conclusion that this actually happened in 70 A.D. You see, we know historically that in 70 A.D. the temple was absolutely... Um, de- demolished, and, and we have historians that have uh, given us firsthand accounts of this, but you, know, you can just simply go to Jerusalem and see that the temple is no longer there as all. In 70 AD, um, Roman soldiers under the command of Titus destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And the Roman armies were an abomination because they worshipped 
the emperor and carried with them idolatrous, idolatrous images that they set up in the temple. And those same armies brought desolation because their commander entered the Holy of Holies. Only the priests were supposed to enter, defiling it and ultimately leveling it to the ground. And Jesus said, when this happens, do, do this. Then, then those in Judea must flee the hills, and a person out on the deck of his roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And, I, and, and pray that your flight will not be in winter. And, and we know, again, that this actually happened, that those that at that time... Um, didn't heed Jesus' instruction, met a, a terrible demise. And those that fled, their lives were spared. Okay, so, so how does this answer the question today, what will the end look like? Well, I, again, and I, again, I'm showing my hand here. Uh, I'm not convinced that, that it does. I think we have evidence to place this event in our past, in, in 70 AD. Now, some... De- uh, some disagree, obviously. Many, many disagree. The most popular idea of our day would, would actually disagree with this and think that the abomination uh, of desolation is in our future and connected to a time that the Antichrist will wreak havoc before the second coming of Jesus. Nonetheless, when Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples, I don't believe his main purpose was to spark our curiosity, speculation, and debate about the end of the world 2,000 years later. Instead, his purpose as the good shepherd is to protect and guide and instruct his, his sheep, and in this case, his early followers to advance the church in its infant stage. So, so okay, where does the rubber hit the road with, with application for us. What can we glean from, from this text so far? Well, some simple things. Jesus is a truth teller. Everything happened just as Jesus predicted it, it would. And I don't have to get in time to get into all the proofs around this, but um, we, many believe that everything happened just as, as Jesus said it would. So Jesus is not a false prophet. And with compassion, we see Jesus gives clear warning and instruction to lead his followers through this very difficult time. And so I, I know many of us in here, if you're human, you've been through some difficult times, haven't you? Or maybe you're going through one now. And we can trust that in relationship with Jesus, in prayer, in instruction, in his word, he will do the same for us. But, but we need to be faithful Again, you see, those that did not yield this clear instruction of Jesus around when you see this thing happen, you got to flee. They met a terrible fate. Because, you see, the natural thing to do at that time would have been to run toward the city walls of Jerusalem. And many, many did. That's why, by some counts, 1.1 million people were slaughtered during this time. Here's a, a, a quote from Josephus, who's a, a Jewish historian. He was actually a, a Pharisee. There's a whole bunch more to his history. It's, it's fascinating. But he was an eyewitness of these accounts, and here's what he says. The Temple Mount 
everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames and the number of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased their fugitives. And I read in other places that literally, as the Romans were trying to burn the city down, they were coming up in competition against the blood of those that were slain that was quenching the fire. So what what can we learn? Well, the natural, the practical thing to do is not always the right or even the safe thing to do. We can learn that being faithful means not yielding to our flesh, not yielding to our emotions, not yielding to the most practical thing to do, but yielding to the supernatural word of God by faith. Okay, now Jesus continues here in verse 19 to describe a great time of tribulation. Let me read the first part of our text here. For there will be great anguish in those days, pardon me, greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Okay, although I believe that this particular event has taken place in 70 AD, the Bible is clear that we will all continue to face tribulation. And and again, in answer to our question about when will the end come, Uh, What will the end look like? Well, a a clear picture of the degree of that tribulation for believers as the second coming of of Christ approaches really depends on that end-time framework that you adhere to. So views range from from we're going to be completely uh, absolved of it, Uh, we, we will have nothing to do with it, we'll be snatched right out of here and have nothing to do with the tribulation, to know we are going to be heavily persecuted as a church. The views range on on both ends. But regardless, no matter what the level of tribulation we face, again, remain remain faithful. Whether it's now or if if Jesus were to come back shortly and and tribulations ramp up, remember, remember those who have been faithful before us, who have faced and endured so many trials. Remember Joseph. Joseph being um, abandoned uh, in in the pit in in his time in an Egyptian prison. Remember Joseph's faithfulness and God's hand upon him to carry through it. Remember Daniel in the lion's den. Remember Queen Esther and her bravery. And who can forget good old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Men who would rather be thrown in a burning oven than forsake their king. And, and oh, by the way, if you are in here today and you don't know, uh, you're not familiar with any of the names I just spoke of, well, you need to get in your Bible. And you need to read it every day and learn more about the champions of our faith that have gone before us. And of course, then we also have the words of Jesus to his disciples. This is right before he's going to go to the cross in, in John uh, 16, verse 33, he knows his disciples are going to lay their lives down 
They're going to be in torturous ways and, and, and killed, martyred for the faith to continue to advance the gospel. And this is what he says. I, this is what Jesus says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Continuing on in our text. Then, if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I have warned you about this ahead of time. Jesus, is, Jesus simply says, watch out. False messiahs, false prophets, they're coming and they're going to try to trick you. And this is as true for us today as it was then. We have a formula, a formula, thankfully, to identify false prophets, right? We know that if someone predicts something that doesn't come true or uh, prophesies something leading us away to uh, other gods, that that prophet is false. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, that prophet was ordered to be stoned, to be killed. I think um, for some of us, uh, well, the, the idea of false messiahs, um, this one I don't think is... Well, let me just say this. I think it's maybe easier to identify people that literally just come out of the woodwork and say, I'm, I'm Jesus, you know, just because they've got a long hair and a beard and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, in fact, I, I had a gentleman, short, short story here, a gentleman that I uh, was, was spending some time with mentoring, and he had a, truly an incredible story. And one day he shared with me, um, and even if, if he heard this message, I... Uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but um, I, love this, I love this guy and, and, and praying for him. He, he said to me, you know, I, I, I'm just going to say it. I think I'm Jesus. And I said, hey, I said, you've done a lot of drugs. This is true. I said, you've done a lot of drugs. And I said, Jesus is not sleeping with his girlfriend, which was something he was involved in. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, you, you got a good point there. So, um, <laughs> but I think those are, are easier to identify cases like that. Um, but the enemy is, is slick, right? We need to be careful not to fall for the good without God types. Those that claim to, that they can save the world. Those who promise to save us through this humanitarian um, utopia controlled by the state. And you better like it because if you don't, we're going we're gonna to accuse you of hate speech and throw you in jail. Those, those folks, you know, they do have evangelists out there as well. Did you know that? They have evangelists uh, uh, in the media. They have them on the big screen. They have them in schools and higher education. And they write beautiful music with lyrics Catchy lyrics that uh, we, we, even some of us in here, I'm sure, have, have sung along to, hum along to. Remember? Uh, uh, imagine, right? Imagine, imagine, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people. We have, we have imagined, okay, John, and it's, 
it, it, some, yeah, some of you know the musical reference there. Yes, uh, we have imagined, and it's led to litter boxes in public school bathrooms. So can, we need to stop imagining now. Moving on. So, so now this time of tribulation has passed, and Jesus is describing something really fascinating here. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth to, uh, and heaven. Once again, in terms of S eschatology, in terms of end times, there is debate over whether this particular scripture is referring to the final return of Jesus or an event in the past. But at a bare minimum, it hints toward what Christians have coined the rapture. The rapture is not a word that's in the Bible, but is a concept that we find in scripture. And the idea is that in a, in a blink of an eye, Upon the return of Christ, we will, be trans, we will be transformed and we will be united with Jesus in the air on his way to consummate his kingdom, to bring rule to his kingdom here on earth. And we get this fascinating truth from passages like this one, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a coming, commanding shout with the voice of of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Scripture clearly affirms that Jesus will return to rule and gather his faithful elect to live in glory with him forever with our Savior and our righteous King. This is good news. Jesus is coming back. He has promised to gather his faithful followers to himself. This is our blessed hope, the blessed hope that we will meet Jesus face to face. There's no hindsight needed here. This one we can take to the bank. Let me close. Oops, I'm going to go back to this slide. Let me uh, close by, by just saying a few things about this whole idea. What will the end look like? You know, this is a fascinating subject, right? Many people are consumed and maybe even obsessed with this idea. Think about... Uh, not just the church, not just people of the church, but also people outside of the church, um, the secular folks who make big blockbuster movies about this stuff all the time. And, and I can tell you in, in my own life, um, this has been something I thought of. I was thinking back to um, a conversation. It's actually the first dialogue I can re ever remember having with my mother. And I can place I can place the, the home we are in, which means I was somewhere around four years old. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, when we die, can I take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich with me? 
And I I think there's a reason for this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. Friends, God has put eternity in your hearts. And I believe this explains the fascination for this subject within and, and outside the church with believers and with, with unbelievers. And I know this subject can be, can be scary. It can, it can cause some angst. But I, I want you to know that fear can actually be your friend. Sometimes fear, even though the Bible has all sorts of places talking about don't be afraid, sometimes fear is actually a gift of God. Let me tell you a story about my bride when we were dating. Now, we're from Chicago. Um, when I say that, you think of big buildings and that kind of thing. But actually, we lived out in the suburbs where lots of cornfields, bean fields. Uh, look more like Kansas than a bunch of big buildings, okay? And what do you get in Kansas? You get tornadoes. And we were, this was a spring. And we had one of these wicked storms that just came out of nowhere and it went from a bright sky to a black sky in a matter of minutes. The trees are bending back and forth. The wind is howling. The tornado sirens are going. People are diving into basements. People are afraid. And, and I, don't know, I don't know out here if that's a, a kind of a thing, but back in the Midwest, it's a thing. When you grow up in an area where you literally can drive by towns that have been completely wiped away by tornadoes, it's scary. And I remember at that time, I was, I was with Valerie at her mom's house, and she looked at me. This was a time, it was early in my walk, and I had been bugging her a bunch. And she was getting annoyed with me about talking about Jesus at this time. Uh, I mean, I'm, I want to be fair to her. That's maybe making her sound worse than she really wasn't at all. But okay, <laughs> there, there was some times, you know, I'm like, I want to listen to Caleb. She's like, no, I want to listen to, you know, you too. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. So uh, <laughs> that was early in my walk. And she said, she looked at me with all this going on and said, what's going to happen if we die? What's going to happen if we die? And I, I did my best at that time to, to articulate the gospel to her. As I mentioned earlier, there, there are two types of eschatology. This world, as we know it, has an expiration date. Every one of us has an expiration date as well. Now, this question around what will the end look like, maybe a good chance you might be more confused now than when we started our message this morning. And it is, it is a complicated um, uh, doctrine to try to really nail down. But thank goodness the eschatology of your end time, when your end date comes, is much more simple to understand. God has made it very simple. He simply asks that you repent and believe Jesus. Repent from your sin and believe Jesus. That's it. Now, you might say, well, okay, well, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Well, it mean, here, here's the gospel in a nutshell. 
And I would just say, uh, before I get into that, I would just say this. If you can't answer this question, what's going to happen when I die? What will the end look like for me? Because chances are your expiration date is going to come before the end of the world expiration date. If you can't answer that question, or if your answer uh, sounds anything like or has anything to do with your life, how good or even how bad you've lived your life, and you need to hang around and talk to myself or talk to Pastor Mark or talk to another believer here, um, because God has made this uh, uh, simple plan for you. John, First uh, John 5.13 says that we can have assurance. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know you're going to be one of those that are raptured up with Jesus. So again, what does it mean to believe? Well, it means that you believe Jesus came, that God in the flesh came. He lived a perfect life on your behalf. He, He never sinned. You believe that Jesus then went to the cross to pay the sin penalty that you deserve to pay. And then you believe Jesus, three days later, walked out of his grave. And now he offers you life. You believe that Jesus has moved you from a place of dead in your sins and trespasses to alive in Christ. And you can be with God in his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for such a simple plan. We praise you for sending your son, Jesus, to live that perfect life on our behalf. We thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross to pay the sin penalty we deserve to pay. And Holy Spirit, we yield to you that you would live our lives, uh, you would live your life through us, God. I pray for anyone here today that hasn't come to that place, that hasn't come to a place of of knowing a place of assurance to know that apart from their efforts, they can trust Jesus in your efforts. I pray that they would come to that place and and surrender. Lord, we, we can't wait to meet you face to face. But until that time, God, we pray that you help us Wake up every day, put our feet on the ground, and clock in with you before we clock in for anyone else. Put your agenda ahead of all of our other agendas, Lord, and that we would be obedient to your Holy Spirit to live our our lives in a way that attracts people to your Son, Jesus. We pray all this in his beautiful name. Amen.